Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It's great to have you with us another Thursday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into this great topic of theology of the body uh, this Thursday and for all the foreseeable future Thursdays. We will be talking about Christopher West, The Love That Satisfies. This, again, is a work where he takes up some of the key points from uh, Benedict XVI's work, Deus Caritas Est, which translated simply means God is love. Uh, so as I uh, had Chris Seibert with me last week, he is here with me again this week. So uh, Chris, it is great to have you with me here another evening. Good to see you again, Joe. Thanks for having me back. So uh, Chris, we are going to get into chapter one here, a, a chapter where we are set to uh, take up an inquiry into encountering God who is love. Now, I think for a lot of us, this is difficult, not because we haven't studied theology. It's difficult because our understanding of God in general is not a God who is love. <laughs> you know, so Christopher West poses the question, and, and I pose it to our listening audience, you know, what is our image of God? How do we think about God? I think for a lot of us, Chris, we think about God within the context of uh, this man who's up there somewhere as some sort of punitive policeman waving his finger who is disconnected from the world. And, and maybe that has something to do with maybe a personal experience that we've had. Maybe it has something to do with how American popular culture presents God. But the God who reveals himself in sacred scripture indeed is a God who is love. And so this is really what we are about here in Theology of the Body, taking up this question, who is God? How can we even talk about encountering God who is love? And ultimately, how do we make sense of all of this? So uh, this is very much what is going to be at the heart of, of our uh, inquiry this evening, and again, I think, for the uh, foreseeable future. I think, Joe, when I think of um, an image of God as a, as a disciplinarian, it's, it's exactly how I felt uh, growing up. My, my image of God was as a disciplinarian, and I think there's a certain comfort level in that uh, as, a, as, a, as a society, as a, as a, a group. We don't have to go into the depths of who God really is. It, it, it stays on the surface that way, mm. and he is a benevolent man mm -hmm. with a gray beard somewhere who is, um, like you say, disconnected. But there's a lot more danger. I mean, I think of right away when you're describing this, I think of uh, Aslan the lion. Mm. Mm. You know, he, he's not a, a, uh, a god you put in a, a box. Yeah, there's danger. Yeah. He's 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 on the edge. He's going to push you mm -hmm. to uh, limits that you didn't know about before. So, yeah, I think it is important for us. And the more I learn about theology of the body, to push back, you know, maybe some of our preconceived notions about God. Yeah, be, before we can construct and encounter God for, for who He is, to to some degree, we have to uh, deconstruct <laughs> this idea of God that we have in in mind and heart and. I think you make a fine point there, Chris, and what you talk about. I mean, this is one of the manifestations in today's atheism. I mean, they can offer up all of these nice-sounding case points into why they don't believe that God exists, 
But in the end, what the atheist is really saying, I want to keep God at arm's distance. Because if I do that, then that means I don't have to be pushed, as you were talking about Aslan earlier. That means I don't have to change those things that I know I need to change if God does exist. It was interesting. Uh, when I was in Oxford a few years ago, I had gone to a uh, seminar given by one Keith Ward. Now, Keith Ward's Keith Ward is uh, quite well known in many circles because he is a convert from atheism, and now he debates atheists. Uh, he is well known because he has debated the likes of uh, Sam Harris, um, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and, and others. Um, the one point he made in this seminar is that in his debate, he makes the point to get beyond the proofs, the, the arguments, all of these you know, points, counterpoints, so as to get into the deeper moral question. Why do you believe that God, God does not exist? Because all of the reasons that you've given to me why you don't believe God exists actually proves that God exists. And he has a wonderful way of doing that. And so he gets the atheist to see that in the end, they don't believe in God. Because if they believe in God, that means that they have to deal with past wounds. That means that they have to deal with brokenness. That means that they have to deal with the right and the wrong. This in many ways, Chris, is, is what's behind the, the movie, uh, God is Not Dead, huh? So important to be thinking about as we take up this question of, of who is God? What is, what is all this talk about God being a God of love? That being said, we have to be able to ask the question, if sacred scripture says God is love, as 1 John 4, 16 reminds us, what does that mean for us? When I think about, as a teacher, you look at trying to present faith, it's a very difficult thing within the context of a classroom, mm -hmm. because you have this overarching question, well, how are you going to grade that? Yes. It, which yeah, is kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. folly, you know, <laughs> yeah, to yeah. try and grade somebody's faith progress. But I think that's part of our, our problem is we need, we need to attach some kind of a, a grade or a mark <laughs> mm -hmm. to this relationship. And it's really, we have to get beyond that mm -hmm. to really understand who God is. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's always good to be reminded about the nature of truth itself when you start talking about, you know, how do you look at faith, objective, subjective, and to be mindful of, of what some of this terminology means. Um, I could never reinforce enough, Chris, when you talk about what is objective, um, what you can mark, right, is what is external, revealed, seen, what can be made known, right? Christ revealed himself. Christ entered into history and revealed himself, right? We have Christ in the middle of our timeline for a reason. He objectively entered into our history. And then we have this subjective element, huh? What is subjective is hidden, unknown, what we do not see. And yeah, that you cannot mark per se. And what's most fascinating is that subjective piece, that more subjective element of our faith, is about the encounter. That in many ways, again, is what shapes and forms, you know, history. Here, Chris, I'm reminded of uh, John Paul II's great line that, you know, history is not some series of chronological events, but an event of freedom where man chooses right from wrong, his subjective encounter with Christ. And out from that decision, we have um, an objective truth. The impact of that decision, the, the outward effect of that decision, huh? 
What's so important for us, Chris, is, is we talk about the God who reveals himself in sacred scripture, the, the God who, who reveals himself objectively. That objective truth, that is Jesus Christ, forms and informs that encounter, that experience. And I think that's really what our study is all about in many ways, because it is in the pursuit of coming to understand this God who is love, that our encounter with God might be enriched. And uh, certainly this is what we have to look forward to, not as John Paul II once said, as this model of master-slave. No, 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 that is not what it's all about. I mean, for John Paul II, that, that is formed the gospel. And when you read all of the gospel narratives, what you find quickly that this is a God who has come to us in a very intimate and profound way. And this is really what lies at the heart of that question, you know, what does it mean to say God is love? It is to talk about intimacy. It is, it is to talk about relationship. You know, last week, I know, Chris, you had brought to our discussion uh, the Trinity, to see the Trinity as this perfect eternal exchange of love, love given, love received, love shared. Okay, that's a nice packed definition, but what does that mean? When we talk about God who is love, what do we mean to say? I think if we really want to get underneath this question, we have to ask a new question, Chris. Does God love us today more than yesterday? Does God love us more tomorrow than today? My answer would be yes, yes, because this is the nature of God. He gives of himself infinitely. He gives of himself in this inexhaustible capacity. What does the word mystery mean? The Greek word mysterium, the inexhaustible reality of God. What is that reality that we're talking about? But love. So he gives of himself more and more each and every day. And that for some of us might be a wild thought to think about. You know, God loving us more today than he did yesterday. He's going to love us more tomorrow. But you know what, Chris? As fathers, I think we should be able to grasp the meaning of this. Because as fathers, we're constantly looking at more ways to give of ourselves. At least, I hope that this is what we're aspiring towards. Mm -hmm. And that God shows us what this looks like. This love is unsuspecting. It's unpredictable. No one foresaw the crucifixion, at least on a human level. Certainly it was prophesied in, in Isaiah 53, but no one really saw that coming. To die that kind of death, for God himself to become a man, before we even talk about his death, but for God to become a man, to stoop to our level, that kind of humble love, and then to take the way of the crucifixion, that as one Josephus records and, and Eusebius talks about, the first and third century historians, this is the most horrific human kind of execution. And this is the path he chose. This is very unpredictable. Yet, this is the nature of God's love. You know, he's constantly pouring himself out in new ways. So if we as fathers are aspiring to be examples of God to our children, we are going to expand in our love for them, which is something that is humbling for me to think about. Yes, yes. How do we continue to expand that love? Yeah. I mean, if the Trinity is this perfect eternal exchange of love, how do we gain insight to this? But the crucifixion. You know, Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11. You know, that great Christological hymn where he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he was obedient to death, death on the cross. That is a profound insight into the nature of God's love. 
this sonship of obedience of faith where he just gives of himself totally and entirely. So uh, this is tough to hear maybe for some of us, but when you start talking about encountering God who is love, the crucifix is the icon of this love. The crucifix, Chris, if we're going to talk about it within the context of an icon, is a window into a whole nother realm of what love looks like. And last week we introduced the terms eros and agape. Agape defined, again, remember, is that sacrificial love. Not self-getting love, not self-seeking love, but a love that opens itself to other. This is very important because when we start getting into more of the specifics of the sacramentality of the body and theology and all that, this is foundational for sure. And something that Christopher West talks about in his book is uh, agape leading to a, an understanding of eros, uh, mm-hmm. infusing our understanding of erotic love, mm-hmm. that self-giving love you were just talking about. Maybe you could help me to understand that a little better. How does agape infuse eros? Yeah, that's a good question, Chris, and a very important question. And before we talk about infusion, we would have to first talk about how it purifies. But before we even talk about that, we have to first understand that our sacrifices and our suffering is a sharing in the mystery of Christ's own suffering. And as such, it is something that is grace-filled. Okay? So we share in the mystery of Christ's donation of the flesh so as to better understand the redemptive power of our donation of the flesh to our spouses. So just as Christ gives of himself for his bride, the church on the cross, so are we called to donate our flesh for our bride. And once we understand its Christian dimension, its Christ-like dimension, we are then made to see, Chris, and I think this is what's really important, is that it is a grace moment. And the grace itself is what purifies that sexual urge, that animal-like instinct, and that once infuses it with life-giving power. Uh, Yeah, Chris, I mean, as Christopher West notes, I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, that Christ took on flesh to redeem our flesh by sharing with us in his flesh the love that truly satisfies. We could put it this way, when Eros meets agape, Eros meets its fulfillment because in the physical, conjugal, consummative act of the Eros, what you have is the donation of the flesh. And what Christ reveals is that the donation of the flesh, while it is life-giving, it is also sacrificial. Would it be right to say then, um, from what we're reading in chapter one, that you know, sex outside of marriage, illicit sex, yeah, it offers a quote-unquote, quick fix, but it's, it's followed, you know, almost overwhelmed by an emptiness mm-hmm. um, that ensues because we're separating. We're taking Eros and we're saying, that's enough by itself. Let's mm-hmm. just stay here. Mm-hmm. And then it, it doesn't lead to agape. There's nothing self-giving about it. So even in our own being, uh, our own, uh, you know, concept or, or, or um, you know, what's stamped on our being, we know that that is wrong, and that's where that emptiness comes from. Yeah, it goes back to, Chris, that this, the sexual urge, as John Paul II would like to talk about it, is the raw material for that more authentic mm-hmm. love to develop. Mm-hmm. That sexual urge, again, 
uh, we've been endowed with opens us up to the opposite sex, right? right? And so in that, we are drawn into communion. And that communion, which is consummated, mm-hmm. is again a reflection of the Trinity. Yeah. But what the Trinity teaches us is that that love is also sacrificial. Mm-hmm. And as we were just talking about, all sacrifices are grace moments. So there is going to be an emptiness uh, when there is not that grace, um, especially when you start talking about illicit sex, sex outside of marriage, because uh, then, of course, uh, what you're talking about is the grace that comes to us from the sacrament of marriage. If you are not drawing from that, well, what are you drawing from? You're just going to be clutching an empty space. So, yeah. Chris, I was hoping to get into, and this would be a good segue, mm-hmm. to, the, to the relationship between love and joy. I think today... Uh, we find that our joy comes from earthly things, earthly things that maybe really don't have the lasting power, you know, if our team wins or not. I, I, Are you I know, reading I, on my face, Joe? I know the Dodgers. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a poorly kept secret at Notre Dame School that Mr. Sai is a, is a Dodger fan. And I heard a few uh, anecdotal uh, references to that today. Again, Cloud hanging over I, my head. I... Uh, Again, let's put this in the context of of fatherhood, Chris. If I watch my son enjoy, say, a championship run in basketball, do I share in my son's feet? You betcha. Do I experience a joy for him? Of course I do. Um, But is that the kind of joy that I'm talking about? What about maybe the discipline that he needed to uh, show in order to achieve that championship, in order to achieve that great feat? of winning a basketball championship? Do I share in in those sacrifices um, that he put on display? Sure I do. I applaud those. And to some degree, I applaud those more than I do the championship itself. But as a father, what gives me the greatest joy and the most joy is when I see uh, my son maybe drive my daughter to the sacrament of confession. The love that my son has for his sister gives me more joy than what he had to sacrifice to achieve that championship because it is the more authentic and deeper expression of love. Okay, championship, great. Discipline needed to get that championship, even better. But the sacrifice he has to make for his sister is that deeper expression of God's love. And that's what brings me the most joy because it is a love that is not about self, but about other. You know, and, and I think that's the kind of love-joy relationship we need to start talking about. Not the joy that comes from earthly things, but the joy that comes from spiritual realities. It's so easy today to get caught up, you know, with uh, my A's just... Uh, they Imploded. <laughs> yeah, they really did. <laughs> and by the grace of God, and I say by the grace of God, I was able to quickly move on. And quite honestly, Chris, it was really reflecting upon what we're talking about now. Because in the end, all of these things, they are passing. What has the lasting power? The joy we receive when we encounter the God who is love. The joy we receive when we encounter God's love being imitated in our own families. This, Chris, this is what has the lasting power and sustains itself over time. What comes to mind when you share the um, things about athletic 
accomplishment or you know worldly accomplishment is how that can be a stage for growth in agape types mm-hmm. of types mm-hmm. of love. Uh, you mentioned the example of uh, an older brother taking his younger sister to the sacrament of, of confession as a uh, a self donation. You know something that is maybe not the first thing he'd want to do, but doing it anyway. Uh, I think of some of the uh, stories I've seen of um, incredible spiritual realities being revealed on the baseball field, for instance. Yeah, yeah. The chicken runs at midnight, okay? This, this incredible story about how uh, a 1990s World Series run being scored revealed for the father of that son. Mm. Incredible truth, and we don't have time to go into it, but it, it reveals an incredible truth about the reality of agape love mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm. I guess I, what I'm trying to say is that stage can be a powerful one for our children if we relate it back to agape. Yeah, I mean, we have that wonderful verse that comes to us from the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews 12, I believe it is, verses 1, 2, and 3, where um, the author is talking about the saints cheering us on, you know, fight the good fight, run the race. Uh, Paul uh, likes to play around with the image of, of sport because it is a means to understand a deeper truth. And that deeper truth is that we belong to a team, and that team is the Christian Catholic faith, where we are called to make sacrifices for one another. And if we make those sacrifices, building up the body of Christ, we will know the victory that has already been claimed by Jesus Christ. Right. And again, the sacrifice equals joy, and uh, the victory we will know will be an encounter with joy. Mm-hmm. You know, we have mm-hmm. to see that joy is the natural outgrowth of that more authentic expression of love. It's no wonder that Pope Benedict said what he said in his last volume of Jesus of Nazareth, that joy is the first proclamation of the New Testament. And he's, of course, highlighting you know, the angelic salutation of Gabriel to Mary, hail full of grace. The Greek can also render rejoice, O highly favored one. So grace and joy, you know, these two words that have the same Greek root, they belong together. So it is. Pope Benedict XVI says that this is the first proclamation of the New Testament. That's strange to a lot of people, but when you think about it, no. Because joy is the natural outgrowth of love. Joy is what spills out of God's love. This is why we see all throughout the gospel narratives, one narrative after another, a narrative about joy. You know, the prodigal son, right? The father's love. We see him running to his son, which goes against every cultural instinct back then. He runs to his son and reveals to everyone around him what a father's love ought to look like. And what's the first thing he does, Chris? He wants to celebrate. He, he wants to marry make with his son because he's home again. It's natural to God's love. It's not about keeping score. It's, it's not about what, it, what do the rules say I should do. It is, what is the encounter with God? That, that father had had a deep encounter with God as his father, so he knew. I mean, he didn't have to think about it. It was a natural outgrowth of mm-hmm. his encounter with God, mm-hmm. which is what I take from this chapter, is that Jesus doesn't have to say to the, the harlot, you shouldn't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's already saying it because she has this encounter. When we have that encounter, it's, it's effusive. We know how we are to live um, without having to, you know, do any checklists or, you know, check rules or, you know, look at a classroom management or anything mm-hmm. like that, you know, management plan. So 
Anyway, that's, it's very striking to me. Yeah, you see that time and time again in the gospel. I love the exchange between Philip and Nathaniel. You know, Philip had just had this encounter with Jesus Christ, and he goes to Nathaniel, and he's telling him about, he's telling him about Jesus Christ, the, the fulfillment of the promise, this, this Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Oh, what good comes from Nazareth? And Philip's response, not see and come, right? But come and see, because uh, the scene is in light of the coming. The scene is in light of the encounter. The encounter with what, not what, but who? Love. Jesus Christ, who is the incarnation of love. It's no wonder that we see uh, in the adoration of the Magi. You know, they arrive there at the scene. And I love this, Chris. The translation, the English translation of the Greek is, when they saw him, they found him, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When you look at that in the Greek, typically Greek is very economical two, three, maybe four syllables. This Greek has 13 syllables. Mm. It's not passive, it's active. In fact, in the Greek, we could say it's almost explosive. You know, some translations have them, you know, not prostrate, but kind of fall to the ground as, as, as almost as if they're just, you know, they're tired. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's the opposite. They are overwhelmed with their encounter of the infant king. So, we are made to see that joy is explosive. Joy is active. Why? Because of God's love. So joy is this great fruit of God's love. Now, why is this so important for you and I, Chris, as we start to work through this book? Because we can also talk about joy within the context of bliss. We can also talk about joy within the context of this experience or encounter that we have with our spouse that no words can describe, right, mm-hmm. in, in the consummative act. And I'm kind of setting this up for future programs. Uh, there's, there's a reason why we are talking about joy. There's a reason why we are talking about bliss as it relates to love. Because when you talk about eros and agape, you are talking about two different kinds of love there, Chris. But what binds them in many ways is not only that we seek them, but also that we encounter joy in them. And the joy that we encounter is an actual sharing in God's very life and love. Amen to that. You know, Chris, maybe for our listeners who are uh, tuning in for the first time, this may seem so over the top, but this is what theology of the body does. It gets us thinking in a new way, a way rooted in principle about the God who is love. Let us close in a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.